I thought it was very appropriate, as usual. God, in his sovereignty, has led us to begin our new year with Abraham interceding between man and God on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you'll be patient with me as we get toward the end of our lesson, I will discuss some of how that relates to the events of our day and what happened just two weeks ago. Well, we did end our second year of study in the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, while in the midst of looking at the life of a very great Old Testament patriarch named what? Abraham, right. Now, Abraham is referred to in the scripture by a number of names and titles. We looked at this last year, such as father of many nations, which was kind of a joke because he didn't even have any children for so many years. But he's also referred to as the father of the faithful. He's referred to as a prophet, father of kings. He's referred to as a mighty prince, a man strong in faith. We always think of father Abraham as the the father of our faith. But one of the most precious titles, I think, in all the scripture is that Abraham is called the friend of God. And that's unique. He is the only individual in all of the Old Testament to have this specifically said about him. He's the only one in the Old Testament to be called the friend of God. Now, why would Abraham have this distinction above all other persons in the Old Testament? Well, probably, and there is almost unanimous agreement, that it is because of the intimate conversation that Abraham has with the Lord himself right in Genesis chapter 18, which is the chapter that we're going to be looking at this morning, as well as also the confidence in Abraham, which the Lord demonstrated in this very same chapter. So why is Abraham called a friend of God? Primarily because what we learn about him and his relationship with the Lord in Genesis chapter 18. And therefore, the title for our lesson on Genesis 18 is very appropriately entitled The Friend of God. That's what we're calling our lesson. This 42nd lesson in our Genesis study is entitled The Friend of God. Now in the 33 verses which make up Genesis chapter 18, we'll be looking at three sections. And you can see them on that um, outline that I have given to you. First of all, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 8, the ministry of Abraham, then verses 9 to 22, the messages given to Abraham by some very special guests or strangers who visit him. And then third of all, in verses 23 to 33, we'll be looking at the mediation of Abraham as he mediates between God and man, between God and what he's going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's begin very quickly. I know I'm going to be moving along fast, but there's so much to cover. Let's look at verses 1 to 8, Genesis chapter 18, the ministry of Abraham. It says, And the Lord appeared unto him, that's speaking of Abraham, unto Abraham in the plains of Mamre. And he sat, Abraham sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lift up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. 
and I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on. For therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. And Abraham hastened unto the tent, into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal. Sarah, the boss is coming to dinner. Hurry up and make some bread. That's my um, interpretation there. She says, he says, knead it. Now he's telling her how to make it. <laughs> knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it unto a young man. And he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. The patriarch's experience with God as related to us in this chapter begins with him just very simply sitting in the doorway of his tent in the middle of the noonday heat. We notice that in verse 1. Now we know that the experience of Abraham here in this passage was with God himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, which in in theology is called a Christophany. This is the appearance of Christ in a human form before he was actually born in Bethlehem. Now, we know that this experience was with the Lord himself because in verse 1, if you'll notice the word the Lord is all in capitals, L-O-R-D, all capitals. In Hebrew, that is the word Jehovah. And Jehovah, of course, is in the Old Testament the Jesus of the New Testament. Now, because verse 2 states that Abraham lifted up his eyes, we might assume that he had been praying. He might have been praying about God's earlier promises to him back in chapter 17 that we looked at in May regarding an heir, the promised son who would carry on the messianic line. And this promise in chapter 17 that God had given to Abraham had, um, had probably only been a few days earlier. I know it's been four months for us, but it only probably was just a few days or at the most a few weeks when Abraham had actually heard that, yes, Sarah would bear him a son. It wouldn't be Ishmael, would not be the promised son, the one who would carry on the Messianic line. It would be Sarah's son, and he was told that he was to name that son Isaac. And so very likely Abraham had been thinking about these things. That had been a very hard blow for him because he was very much um, concerned and, and he loved his one and only son at that time, who was Ishmael. Ishmael, at the time God uh, Abraham received that revelation in chapter 17, Ishmael was 13 years old. And so it had shaken Abraham to hear that Ishmael, who he dearly loved, was not going to be the promised son, the one you know, that all the, um, the promised blessings would, would go to, and the one who would eventually, through his seed, would come the promised seed of the woman that we talked about back in Genesis 3.15. And uh, especially he might have been thinking about the fact that God had told him that his barren, beyond childbearing, 89-year-old wife, Sarah, was to be the mother of this son he was to name Isaac. And so most likely, we, we 
might suggest that this is what Abraham was meditating on or praying about when apparently he sensed the presence of others and he lifted up his eyes and it says that lo, three men were standing there right by him. Now we do not know for certain whether Abraham realized at once Oh, I seem to be one transparency behind here, don't I? <laughs> but we don't know if all at, at, the, at right at the beginning, if he knew the great importance of these three st- strangers who were standing there before him, who we learn later as we read on in chapter 18 and also look at chapter 19. We learn that they were indeed the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the leader, and who was with him? Two holy angels. So those were the three. We learned that. There's no speculation about that. But we don't know if Abraham knew this right away. Some suggest that he did not know right away who the three strangers were and that he was merely um, demonstrating godly hospitality to his visitors. Now it is highly probable that the author of the book of Hebrews, whoever he was, whether he was Paul or someone else, that he had Abraham and Genesis chapter 18 in mind when he told his readers to be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained who? Angels unawares. That's in Hebrews 13 too. And we know he was probably very well thinking of Abraham when he wrote that admonition. Thank you, Charlotte. Perhaps Abraham was merely demonstrating the custom of men in the East to be very hospitable toward strangers and toward guests. And perhaps he was initially unaware of the fact that his visitors were from heaven itself. Yet I personally doubt this for several reasons, which I'll give to you. One of which is his haste to run to his visitors. Do you notice that in um, verse 2? He runs to them. And then it says he runs, he's always running around as he's serving them. It says in verse 6 that he hastened to tell his wife to quickly bake some bread. And in verse 7, he runs out to the fields to pick out a calf. And then he asks a young man to hastily prepare the meat. Now remember, this is a very old man. Do you know how old Abraham is as he's running about in the heat of the noonday? 99 years old. I mean, he was either extremely, almost beyond common sense, uh, concerned about being very hospitable to these visitors, or somehow he did sense that his guests were supernatural. After all, they did arrive before him seemingly from nowhere. You know, if you think about it, it's strange that uh, if they had been walking up to him, that an animal, a dog, didn't bark, or that a servant didn't see them first and come and tell Abraham that guests were arriving. Also, we we see his surprise by the word low in verse 2. That suggests, and you know, like he lifted up his eyes and, hello, behold, there they were. It's like as if they appeared from out of nowhere right there in front of him. Now, and another thing is that no one traveled in the heat of the day. That just was not something you did. You rested in the hot part of the day. Now, another indication, at least to me, that Abraham realized his visitors were uniquely special is that um, 
After he ran out to meet them, what does it tell us he did at the end of verse 2? He bowed himself toward the ground. And in Hebrew, you don't see this in English, but in Hebrew the phrase bowed himself is shacha. You don't have to worry about how to spell that or anything. But it is the usual Hebrew word for worship. And this is the first use of that word in the Bible. And I think it's very appropriate, or it would have been very appropriate, if the Holy Spirit did inspire Moses to use this word for the very first time to talk about true worship. That Abraham truly was worshiping the one and only God, the true God. Yet a further indication that Abraham realized he had a heavenly visitation from God in human appearance, that this was a Christophany, is given by his words in verse 3. It says that Abraham, as he bowed before the Lord on the ground, said, what? My Lord. And the word he used for Lord, now notice this is not in capitals. If Lord is all in capitals, it's the word Jehovah. If it is not all in capitals, it's the word Adonai. And this is a title for God. It's one of God's names. And we talked about this last year. Even though it is also a title of respect that's given for men, yet Abraham did seem to realize that his guest's arrival at this point in time, perhaps as he was even praying about Sarah giving birth to the promised son, that their arrival was providential. And so he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. And those words, if you think about it, those would be very curious words if they were spoken to total strangers. I mean, men he just met. And in particular, he's speaking to one. Do you notice? He picks out right away which one apparently is the Lord, which one is the leader. Those would be strange, because how would Abraham have found favor in this man's sight if this man and Abraham had never met before. You know, it would be if he was just merely a passing stranger, how would he know that he had favor in Abraham? And certainly we do know this. We know by verse 10 of chapter 18 that, that Abraham, even if he didn't know before, by verse 10 he fully realized that his guest, his special guest, was the Lord himself. But I think it seems reasonable to believe that he did know this almost from the very beginning. Now, if you and I wish to be considered the friend of God, how many of you would like to be considered the friend of God? I hope everyone in this room <laughs> would desire that. Then we can really learn, or we should learn from Abraham's example, how to go about being the friend of God. First of all, first and foremost... You cannot be a f the friend of God without first knowing God. That's vital. And we learned last year that Abraham truly did know God. In other words, he believed in God and he believed in God's promises regarding the Messiah, the coming Savior, the promised seed of the woman. The promise that was given to Adam and Eve all the way back in the garden that one day... Uh, her seed, a woman's seed, which speaks of a virgin birth because women don't have seed, that one would come from a miraculous birth and that he would defeat sin and Satan. He would crush his head 
Satan would only bruise his heel, which he did at the cross, but it wasn't a fatal blow because three days later, Christ arose from the grave. He believed that promise. That's what it takes to be saved. From Adam and Eve all the way down to our present day, what does it take to be born again, to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit? It takes belief in Jesus Christ, that he is the one who came crushed Satan's head, defeated death in the grave, and uh, rose from the dead. On our behalf, he died for our sins. He took our sins upon him on the cross. He paid the wages of sin, which is death for us, for you and for me. It's always been the same, that a man or a woman or a, a boy or a girl is saved by placing their faith in this promised one, the Messiah, who we now know the side of the cro- cross is Jesus Christ. And when you believe in him, you put your faith in him, you trust in him, you turn over your life to him, then you know God because you can only know God through Christ. Christ is the one who came to earth to reveal God the Father to us. When we look at Christ, we see God because he is the second person of the triune Godhood. Not only did he come to reveal God to us, but he came to redeem us so that we could live in heaven forever. He is the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, whose blood was shed in order to keep the angel of death from all who place their faith in him. So first of all, if you want to be the friend of God, you have to know him. You have to be born again. And if you're in doubt about that, if you don't know that you've ever been born again, and I use that term because Jesus used that. He said, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. If you don't know that for sure, we need to settle that today. Because as we just saw two weeks ago, life is frail. Life is fragile. You don't know that you even have the next breath. And the only thing that matters, the only thing that mattered for those some 7,000 people who perished was did they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Nothing else mattered at that point in time. How much money they made, who they were married to, how many problems they had, if they had cancer, if they had physical problems, if they had problems with their children, whatever problem, nothing mattered in that split second of time except did they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If they did... They were instantly in his presence. And I'm sure there were some that did. And they did not perish. They were not destroyed. They were instantly in the presence of their Lord. I don't know how many of you saw that email picture of the little boy that drew the picture of the Twin Towers and Jesus Christ standing above. But that blessed my heart so much with those that were his children just coming right immediately into his presence. Christ was there. He took precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. But let's remember, too, that he takes no delight in the death of the the wicked, those that don't know him. Anyway, I'm getting off onto a tangent. But first, please, know God. Secondly, to be the friend of God, you need to spend time with him. And praise the Lord, that's why you're here today, right? Because you want to spend time with the Lord. How do we spend time with him? We spend time with him through prayer. That's what Abraham was doing. He was praying to the Lord in the middle of the day. And we spend time with him when we meditate on his words. And that also is what Abraham had been doing. And then, being the friend of God involves ministry to him. Abraham ministered to the Lord. And he did so in a very gracious 
and a manner which is an example to us. And so it would behoove us to look at how he ministered to the Lord so we can learn from his example. So let's consider for a minute the ways in which Abraham gave us an example to follow when it comes to ministry for others. To begin with, we learned that Abraham ministered to the Lord immediately, right? I mean, just boom, there he was running out to to, uh, greet his guests. Rather than walking out, to meet them, which you would think that a 99-year-old man in the heat of the day might do. No, Abraham Abraham ran to them. And then he ran to Sarah. And then he ran to the, the fields where his herds were kept. And he instructed Sarah and the young man who dressed the calf to do the same, that everything should be done in haste, immediately. I mean, you know, we need to redeem our time wisely. We meet, need to be immediately about the business of the Lord. That's why we're here. We shouldn't procrastinate and put things off for tomorrow. We might not have tomorrow. We shouldn't sit around and say, well, I'm getting pretty old and my bones are kind of achy. I mean, we don't have an excuse. Anybody in here 99? I mean, some of us might be getting close to that, but still we can always be a prayer warrior. Abraham, I mean, he didn't give the excuse that I did that when I was younger. I'll let one of my servants go out and greet them and take care of all these things. He did not leave ministry to the younger people to do. He got involved immediately. The mark of a good servant for the Lord is quickness in the recognition of duty. If you see a job needs to be done, do it. In fact, that takes us to another point about Abraham's ministry. Abraham served the Lord personally. Although he had a lot of servants, we learned this back in chapter 14, and he could have very easily sent one of them out to greet the visitors, yet what did he do? He went himself. It's not enough for us to encourage our children or our grandchildren or the kids in our Sunday school class, or uh, anybody who's within our own circles of influence, that they go out and serve the Lord. I mean, yes, granted, we should be doing that, but we must do it ourselves. We must be the example to both our peers and to those uh, those generations which are younger than ourselves. And it isn't sufficient just to give money to um, the church and say, well, they'll take care of the missions and they'll do the work of the Lord. We all need to have personal involvement in ministry for Christ. Also, we find that Christ's ministry to the Lord and to the two men who turned out to be two holy angels who were with him um, was done in great humility. He bowed before the Lord in a very humble uh, position with his face on the ground. And he referred to himself rightly as what? A servant. He didn't say, I'm mighty Abraham, you know, the great patriarch, the father of the faith. No, he called himself a servant twice, verse 3 and verse 5. Now, he could have sat down with his guests under the shade tree, but instead, what did he do? I mean, he could have sat with them and kept them company and told his servants, run and tell Sarah to do this and and run and get a calf, da-da-da-da-da. But he didn't do that. He made sure they were comfortable under the, the shade of a tree, and then he himself ran about making sure that all was ready and done right. Furthermore, when it was time for the meal, this is kind of shocking, he could have sat down with his guests and eaten with them. Or he could have had Sarah wait on them, or one of his servants serve the guests. But as we're told in verse 8, Abraham himself set the food before his special visitors, and it says he stood by them under the tree while they ate. 
He was ready, you see, to meet their every need, as he had done just, you know, as he had done when they arrived, because he made sure at that time when they first got there that they were given water to drink and also water to wash off their dusty, dry feet. And also when he made sure that they had a place to rest under a shady tree. And so he served humbly. Notice that he referred to this wonderful feast that he had prepared. He referred to it just merely as a morsel of bread. You know, he wasn't bragging about all that he had gotten for them. And notice he gave his best. Should we give our best? Yes. We should give our first fruits of service to the Lord. Give the best best of our time, of our energy, um, of our treasures. Everything should be given, you know, work for the Lord, ministry for the Lord, I've always said, should be first class. It shouldn't be sloppy agape. But he gave his best. Notice that the calf is was a tender and good. You know, he picked out that best calf he had. Now, a last point to notice with regard to Abraham's service is that he got others involved in ministry. He didn't just do it all himself so that he alone received the blessing from serving the Lord. Who else did he get involved? His wife, Sarah. He got uh, a young man involved in dressing the meat. And we can also be sure that other servants were involved as water was fetched for the guests to drink and wash their feet. And then when the butter and the milk were prepared for the meal, etc. So Abraham is a dynamic example for us of how to serve others or how to serve the Lord. He was a ministry-minded, humble, gracious, generous man. And we'd already learned this about him, hadn't we? Because remember back in Genesis chapter 13, he had allowed Lot to have the first choice of land for his herds. And we learned this in chapter 14, when he had gone forth and got personally involved in rescuing Lot and all the other citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah from those invading kings that had come over from the east. I mean, he could have just sent off his troops, but he went himself. We also learned this when he took back Hagar in Genesis chapter 16. He took her back graciously even after she had run away. So Abraham was the friend of God because he was always serving and he was always helping others. He ministered to others and he even ministered to the Lord himself. Actually, you know, the Bible does teach us that uh, we as believers, when we minister to others, who are we really ministering to? The Lord. In so much as you do it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you do it, you're doing it unto Christ. Matthew 25, 45. So you and I should be constantly, constantly looking for ways to help meet the needs of of others. And we live right now, especially as never ever before, we live in a needy world. People are looking for answers. And we have the answer, and we need to be about our business of telling them the answer. So we need to remember the way and the attitude of Abraham that he personally got involved in ministry. He immediately got involved. He generously got involved. He humbly presented himself as a servant to the Lord. He gave sacrificially. I mean, he could have died (laughs) running around like that, 99 years old in the heat of the day. But he didn't care. He gave sacrificially, and he gave cooperatively, meaning he involved others in ministry. Okay, now let's move on to a second part of our outline, the messages to Abraham. And for this, let's look at verses 9 to 22. 
Or no, let's let me start by looking at the first message. And for that, I'm just going to read verses 9 to 15. Okay, this, there's two messages. One is uh, regarding Sarah and the promised son. The other one is with regard to Sodom and its sin. I almost titled it, one was to Sarah and her laugh, and the other one, Sodom and its cry. Because you'll hear the Lord talk about hearing the cry from Sodom. But let's begin by looking at Sarah and her son, verses 9 to 15. And they, this is the three guests, said unto him, Abraham, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, and that's the Lord speaking there, by the way. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now, this is just to remind us, Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. And it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. For Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being also being old also. And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You might want to underline that. Very, very important verse or uh, sentence. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he, the Lord, said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. Okay, we'll stop there. For the first time since Sarah had dealt harshly with her Egyptian handmaid, Hagar, she is now brought back into the action of the book of Genesis here in this section. However, even though she's active, she is not visible. Where is she? She's hiding behind the the flap of a a tent. Furthermore, we discover that the, uh, the important message of Abraham's guests in this verse. This is why they visited Abraham, was to give a message. Having completed their meal, Abraham learned what he might well have suspected, that they were not just chance strangers passing by. And their interest was in whom, in particular? Abraham or Sarah? Their interest primarily was in Sarah. And isn't it interesting that they knew her name? I don't know if she'd been introduced, but they knew her name, and they asked where she was. And Abraham demonstrated his very glad surprise that they asked this particular question, because this is what's foremost on his mind, you know. He's very surprised, and he shows it because he says, Behold! And then he says she's in the tent. But the behold shows us glad surprise. Now, do you think that the omniscient Lord had to ask where Sarah was because he didn't know where she was? No, of course he knew where she was. And he also knew that she was eavesdropping. (laughs) Now, something interesting to point out is that 
In verse 9, the scripture tells us that they asked about Sarah. You notice that pronoun, they asked about Sarah. But in verse 10, the pronoun is suddenly changed to he. It says, and he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. That's speaking about the nine months that it takes a baby to um, to, to uh, be born. And uh, lo, Sarah, thy wife shall have a son. Now the word he obviously refers to the leader of this group. And that is the Lord himself who becomes now, after this, the sole communicator with Abraham throughout the rest of the chapter. The end of verse 10 tells us that Sarah, who was inside the tent, but behind the flap, there'd be a flap door, which would separate her compartment from the rest of the tent, that she heard these words of promise. Now, don't you know if you'd been in her shoes, you would have been right there too, <laughs> listening to every word. Well, that's what she was doing. You know, we've never changed. People don't, they're the same throughout all generations. She heard these words of promise that she was going to have a son. Verse 11 then reminds us, as I mentioned before, that uh, they were old and that they were both well stricken, you know, beyond the age of um, of being able to normally have children. And with actually with in Sarah's case, it had ceased with her to be after the manner of women, and you all know what that means. She was beyond childbearing years. In other words, only a miracle of physical regeneration within her body could make those words come true, that she would have a son. So even though Abraham must have surely already told her about God's earlier promise of Genesis 17, 19, you know, that she was to bear a son, she, you know, not Hagar, she was going to have a son whom they were to name Isaac. She demonstrates her unbelief now, hearing these words from the Lord, by laughing within herself at hearing her guests speak this promise of prophecy. She thought to herself that she was just too old to have not only the pleasure of sex, which she talks about, but also, of course, to conceive a son. And she goes even a step further, and she says, uh, my Lord is too old to beget too. Abraham's too old. Well, we find out that this isn't true, is it? Not with Abraham, because even after Sarah, he gets married again to Keturah and has a number of children. But Sarah did, um, the good news is that she did conquer her moment of unbelief. Her, her laughter was a laughter of unbelief. And we know this because of the context. We know this because of what the Lord said to her afterwards. Whereas Abraham's laughter back in an earlier chapter, I guess it was chapter 17, when he heard the good news about having a son through his wife, um, his laughter was a laughter of joy and belief. So there is a difference in their laughters. But she conquered her moment of unbelief. And I believe that it was the Lord's next words, his next communication, which helped her to do this. In verse 13, we learn that the he of verse 10 is indeed the Lord. No doubt about it. Because again, what do we see? The Lord is written all in capitals. So this is Jehovah. This is the Jesus of the New Testament. This is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ speaking. No doubt about it. I'm not just speculating. Well, still speaking to Abraham because Sarah had said absolutely nothing out loud. And she's still behind the tent flap. So 
we're really having a hard time with our transparencies this morning. But anyway, um, so the Lord is still speaking to Abraham, and he says, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Now, if you were Sarah, and you had not laughed out loud, and you hadn't said a single word out loud, what would that tell you about this man out there speaking? <laughs> that he indeed was the Lord. He was demonstrating in that sentence, he was demonstrating to her who he was. Thank you again, Charlotte. <laughs> I know why you came today. <laughs> if he was merely a man, he could not have seen her hiding behind the tent, for one thing, nor could he hear her laugh within herself, nor would he know what her thoughts were. So she very quickly realized who her guest was. She realized that her guest was omniscient. What does that mean? All-knowing. He was all-knowing because he even knew her thoughts. And if he was omniscient, who did he have to be? There's only one who is all-knowing. He had to be God. And if he was God, what did that mean? That he was also omnipotent all-powerful. Because if you're God, guess what? You're all-powerful. And there's only one who is all-powerful, and that is God. He could do anything. If he's God, can he do anything? Of course. And therefore, that meant that he could even revitalize her body. He could turn back the biological time clock, and he could cause her body to go into a pre-menopausal condition and give her a son by her husband. Piece of cake. No problem if you're God. Problem if you're not God, but no problem if you're God. And it was God speaking. So his omnipotence is precisely what the Lord did express to Sarah in verse 14, which is one of the great mountain peak verses of the word of God. The pre-incarnate Jesus Christ asks the question, and this is a rhetorical question which expects a um, no answer, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is it? Obvious answer, no. If you're the Lord, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Dr. Henry Morris says this. He says, quote, to ask the question is to answer it. With God, all things are possible. He who created all things surely controls all things. He who enacted the laws of nature can change them if he wills, end of quote. And then Dr. Morris draws our attention to an interesting fact. He, he says that the word hard... Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is the very same Hebrew word which is translated in Isaiah 9-6, very important verse of Scripture, where it says, For unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born. No, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called what? Wonderful, And then it goes on and says, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Well, the word wonderful in Isaiah 9-6 is the same Hebrew word for hard in Genesis 18-14. Uh, so you could also say, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And that's what we're talking about here. It was going to be wonderful that he was going to give old, barren, Sarah, a child. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? 
No. Is it too wonderful to say that one day at the rapture of the church, every dead believer is going to rise up out of their graves into a glorified body and instantly be with the Lord, uh, with their souls? And and is it too wonderful to to believe that um, when when you when you know the Lord and you die, that you're immediately absent from the body and present with the Lord? Again, speaking of. Um, any any of those that knew the Lord that might have died two weeks ago in that awful atrocity? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is it too wonderful that a virgin could conceive and uh, bring forth into this world the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the one, the only one who will ever bring peace to this world? Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? The obvious answer is, of course not. So do you want to be a friend of God? You want to be considered the friend of God? Then believe, as Abraham did, and as Sarah came to believe. Believe the great promises of the scripture, because every single one of them centers on the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. Believe in the promised seed of the woman who has already defeated death and the grave and who will very, very soon execute judgment on Satan and all of his evil, evil, wicked emissaries in this world, both spiritual and human emissaries. Do you want to be the friend of God? Then get your focus off of the situations which look humanly impossible and get your focus instead on the God of the impossible. Get your eyes off of negative thoughts. Don't fear. Don't fear what men can do to you. Fear reverentially the Lord. He's sovereign. He's still on his throne and all things are work, working according to his plan and purposes. And Genesis 50:20 is still in the Bible. What men meant for evil, God can turn to good. And I know we're already seeing some of the good that is coming out of September 11th. So if you're being plagued by, as Sarah was, if you're being plagued with unbelief, especially in these perilous and anxious times, then remember the two things which the Lord himself used to help Sarah in her unbelief. Remember his omniscience, that he knows all things. And uh, not only did he know Sarah's name and her thoughts and everything about her, he also knows your name and he knows your thoughts and everything about you. And secondly, remember the fact that he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Abraham and Sarah learned that truth. Job learned that truth because Job said, you know, remember all the awful things that happened to Job? You talk about a man with problems. Everything that could happen, calamity-wise, happened to him. And yet he said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be hidden from thee. I hate to not have a picture up here, so I'm going to put, just put that up there. And, of course, many other men and women throughout the ages, including the mother of our Lord, Mary, learned this truth because it was to, the Mar- to Mary that the angel Gabriel said, you know, after he told her that she was going to conceive and have 
a son to name Emmanuel or a Jesus, God with us, and that he was going to be born without a human father. Gabriel then told her, he said, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. And then we even heard these words from the Lord himself when he was speaking to his disciples. He told them that with God, all things are possible. Well, in verse 15, we find that Sarah was really embarrassed for two things. Number one, she was embarrassed because she had been caught eavesdropping. (laughs) And number two, she had laughed in unbelief at the Lord's words. And she'd been caught on both accounts. And now, at this point, she really didn't think very clearly because she denied having laughed. The scripture tells us why she did that. Why? What's it say? She was afraid. So she, she added to her problem by actually lying. See, she said she didn't laugh. Now, by the fact that Abraham's very special guest did know her name and knew about God's promise to bear a son, um, for her to bear a son, and knew all about her private thoughts and knew that she did laugh within herself, Sarah could have very easily, and I think she did, but she wasn't thinking clearly, she could have deduced that this was more than a man. So it was foolish, it was very foolish for her to then contradict him by saying, no, I didn't laugh. And we want to give her the benefit of the, of the doubt here, so let's say that she was denying that she had laughed out loud. She hadn't gone, ha, 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 ha. She did it within herself. So maybe that's what she meant when she said, no, I didn't laugh. She was obviously afraid, because it tells us. Um, and I think she was afraid because she did realize the supernatural nature of her guests. Uh, perhaps she was afraid that her laughter would then cause God to take back his promise of an heir altogether. Or maybe she was afraid that she would be struck down right on the spot because of her unbelief. Whatever the fact was, she was afraid, so she did deny having laughed. Nevertheless, the Lord knew the truth, and for the first time, he spoke directly to Sarah. He said, nay, but thou didst laugh. In other words, he told her that even though she may not have laughed out loud so that Abraham didn't hear her laugh and any servants that might have been standing around didn't hear her laugh, yet he knew that she did laugh within herself, and he knew why. And that was total confirmation to Sarah that he was none other than omniscient God in human form. And never ever again do we read of any unbelief coming from Sarah. Okay, now let's move on to the most important part in my estimation of this chapter, and that's with regard to Sodom and its sin and then the mediation of Abraham. So let's look quickly at Sodom and its sin, verses 16 to 22. And the men rose up from thence, this is after they finished eating, and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. He's really commending Abraham very highly here, saying, in effect, I'm going to skip some of this in my commentary, so let me just tell you now, he's in effect saying that he knows Abraham to be trustworthy and that what he's going to reveal to him about his plans to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he can trust 
to Abraham because Abraham will use this whole episode wisely to teach his own children and future generations about judgment and all, all the lessons that they would learn from the Sodom and Gomorrah experience. And so he's saying he knows Abraham and he knows he can trust him with this information. And it says, And they shall keep the way of the Lord, speaking of his future generations, to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And verse 20, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous... I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence. Now we learn from Genesis 19.1 that those two men who now leave the scene were two holy angels who walked on to Sodom. All right, so they leave, but the Lord stays and, t- and uh, talks with Abraham. It says, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Well, the Lord had de- delivered his uh, wonderful message to Abraham and to Sarah. And the signal that the, um, the end of their conversation was at hand came when they arose. Well, this is all out of sequence, but it gives you something else to look at anyway. <laughs> and they arose and they... Um, They looked toward Sodom, and when they looked toward Sodom, you know that Abraham must have noticed that. And then seeming reluctant to bid goodbye to his guests, or else being a very good host, probably both, Abraham began to walk with them as they headed on their way. And he was also probably, after having seen their look toward Sodom, he was probably very concerned at this point about their obvious intention of traveling to Sodom. And then we find that the Lord spoke softly to himself, but apparently loud enough for Abraham to hear him. And the Lord asks himself a remarkable question. He says, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? That's in verse 17. This is another reason why everybody says that Abraham is called the friend of God, because God himself wanted to give this prophetic information to his friend Abraham. Obviously, he wanted him to know about his intentions toward Sodom and Gomorrah, which he was going to destroy. Why? Because their sin had become very grievous. He wanted Abraham to know this because Lot, Abraham's nephew, lived in Sodom. And, of course, his family also lived there. And Abraham had already demonstrated his very deep-felt love for his nephew when he risked his own life to go and save him after he had been captured by King Ketelamer and the other kings from the northeast. So God wanted Abraham to know why he was going to bring uh, terrible destruction upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Abraham was his friend, the Lord wanted to reveal his intentions to him and thereby, you see, give Abraham that wonderful privilege of being an intercessor for Sodom and Gomorrah and especially for his nephew Lot. Why do you think God gives you and I revelation about what he's going to do in the future? We have a lot more information than he gave Abraham. He gave us the whole story. He gave us everything. Why did he do that? Because does he consider us his friends? 
We're his friends. What does he want us to do with this information that he has given to us? Right. He wants us not only, first of all, to repent when we read it initially, uh, but he wants us to become what Abraham became. He wants us to become an intercessor, a prayer intercessor. Because does he tell us that ultimate judgment is coming upon this world? Did we not study that when we studied Revelation a couple years ago? It's coming, and I believe, man, I believe it's just around the corner. I, I just want to tell the whole world, you ain't seen nothing yet. You thought it was bad on September 11th? That's just nothing. Read Revelation chapter 18 about the fall of Babylon. It's scary. Very, very scary. Don't read it now. (laughs) But, you know, men might have mocked the fact that it says the whole economic system of the world crashes in one day. That's what Revelation 18 says. Babylon, Babylon has fallen in one day. And people say, that couldn't be. Well, folks, have we just not seen that Babylon, the economic system, could even fall in one hour easily? I mean, it's just unbelievable what God is showing us, allowing us to see. I'm not saying God did this. Satan did this. Make that, be sure you understand that was a satanic This is a spiritual warfare, and that came from Satan. But I do have to tell you that God is on the throne, and yes, he is sovereign. And all Satan cannot do what God does not permit. We'll get more into that in a minute. So anyway, um, then I mentioned that the Lord gave a wonderful testimony to the character of Abraham in verses 18 and 19. Um, But we're going to skip over that and get on to, or we'll never finish on time, the mediation of Abraham. So let's look at verses 23 to 33. Okay, this is the third part of our outline, the mediation of Abraham. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city, wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Okay, there's your second important verse or part of a verse to underline shall not the judge of all the earth do right and the lord said if i find in sodom 50 righteous within the city then i will spare all the place for their sakes and abraham answered and said behold now i have taken upon me to speak unto the lord which am but dust and ashes He's admitting, Abraham is admitting that he has no um, pride here. That, you know, he, he is not presuming upon the Lord. He's not saying, well, I have every right in the world to petition you for this, Lord, because I'm Abraham, and I'm great, and you're going to make of me, you know, a, a great and mighty nations, etc., etc. He is saying, I know who I'm speaking to, and I am merely dust and ashes. But, verse 28, peradventure, there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. In other words, if there's forty-five, wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? 
And he, the Lord, said, If I find there forty and five, I will not destroy it. And he, now this is Abraham, this just keeps going back and forth. And Abraham spake unto him yet again, and said, Peradventure there shall be forty found there. And he said, the Lord said, I will not do it for forty's sake. And Abraham was really getting somewhere, so he kept it up, and he said unto him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. He knew he was getting a little carried away here, but he said, Let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall be thirty, shall thirty be found there. And he, the Lord, said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Abraham said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure there shall be twenty found there. And he, the Lord, said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. Well, can you believe it? He does, does it one more time. This is the sixth time that Abraham petitions the Lord. And he, Abraham, said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. He said this will be the last time, and he kept his promise. He said, Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he, the Lord, said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. In this third and final section of Genesis 18, we find one of the most remarkable accounts of intercessory prayer in all of the word of God. Abraham was obviously very concerned about his nephew Lot and about Lot's family. Abraham also, if you think about it, he would have been very concerned about all the other citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, many of whom he probably knew, because remember, he had gone and rescued all of them when he had chased um, the the, uh, invading army all the way up to Damascus and then rescued all the the people who had been taken captive out of those cities. He he got to know those little children and the the women and the old men. He probably knew many of them. He probably went over and would visit Lot every now and then. And so he was concerned not only about Lot, but about all of the people there. So his bold intercession, you have to admit, this is very bold. I mean, you really have to be a friend of God to to do this. And and we are God's friends, so we have every right to do the very same thing. And if nothing else this week, or the last two weeks, I have been thinking about how important this is for you and I to be doing. Lord, God, bless America. Spare our country. If there be only 10,000 righteous, please spare us. Let's get it down as low as we can, okay? I feel confident there are at least 10,000 righteous people in this country, and I'm sure many, many more. And that's why God has spared us all these years. That, along with, we are the number one country in the world which sends out missionaries with the gospel message. And most importantly, why has God been sparing us? Israel. So please, 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 in your intercessory prayers, I beg of you, every one of you, pray that the United States of America, regardless of what happens, that we will always, always stay on the side of Israel. If we do that, we will have God's blessing. I will curse those who curse you. I will bless those who bless you. We alone stand with Israel. We need to stay there, and God will bless us. But, boy, do we need to pray that. 
of all the lessons we could study, I thought this is the most appropriate for what has just happened, that we need to remember how important it is to be intercessors on behalf of our country, on behalf of our our lost loved ones and friends, on behalf of the world. We shouldn't just stop with America. Let's pray that America, who even though we are a post-Christian country, that we could somehow turn around, and that's up to you and I, members of the church, it's our job to turn this nation around. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, God says, then he will heal our land and forgive us of our sin. Have we been sinful? Yes, we have. We've killed many, many babies in the womb. We've allowed homosexuality to just be rampant as it was in Sodom and Gomorrah. We have many, many sins in this country. And it's the church's fault. No one to blame but the house of God. Judgment starts at the house of God. Anyway, I could get off on that, but I better not. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, It says that um, God drew near. uh, Abraham drew near to God. And I think that's interesting because drew drew near in Hebrew is nahash, which means that he came like like an attorney to court to argue his case. And uh, he, he asked the question, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? He's pleading to God on the basis of not really mercy, but on justice here. You wouldn't do that, would you, God? You know, you, if there are ten righteous, well, that's what he got down to, in that city, you won't destroy them with the wicked, will you, God? I mean, shall not the judge of all the earth do that which is right? You know, when God sends judgment, when it comes from God, does he destroy the righteous with the wicked? Did he in the flood? What? No. He removed the righteous. When that judgment came from God, first he removed the righteous. He put him into that ark of safety. When God sent judgment, and it was God that sent down the fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, did he remove the righteous first? Yes. Even though there weren't ten, still he removed them. When God sends those judgments of the, the, the trumpet judgments and the seal judgments and the bowl judgments during the tribulation, does he remove the righteous first? Yes, he does in the rapture of the church. Okay, so remember that God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Now you say, well, what about the people that perish? That judgment did not come direct from God. That was a satanic judgment. And even still, the righteous were not destroyed. They are far better off than they were. They have glorified, well, not, they don't have their glorified bodies, but they're with the Lord. So they're not destroyed. They did not perish. So even if we do not fully understand, and we don't, God's actions, we do know that he will always do that which is right. One day we will fully understand that truth. But until then, what do we have to do by faith? We have to believe it. Based on all that we know about God through his creation, based on all that we know about God through his word, and based on all that we know about God through his son, and all that we learn about his son when we study the scripture, then we find out that it's really, really not that difficult to believe that God will always do that which is right. Ultimately, he will be glorified, and he will do that which is right. Now, in light of that which occurred only two weeks ago, September 11th, with those terrorist attacks 
in New York and in Washington, D.C., and in Pennsylvania, we need to remember the truth of the obvious answers to the two towering questions of Genesis chapter 18. These are the two towers here, two towering important questions that are posed in this chapter. One, is anything too hard for the Lord? Class? No. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? No. And shall not the judge of all the earth do right? What's the answer? Yes, he will. He will always, always do that which is right. Now, do I understand how everything that has happened fits into the prophetic picture? I've had people come to me and say, how does this fit into Revelation? How does this fit into eschatology? How does this fit into the prophetic picture of the last days? Do I understand it? How it fits in? No, I don't. Does anyone here? I'm waiting to hear how somebody's going to tie this in. I don't know how it fits in because it is particularly difficult to to uh, do that because the United States of America is not in the prophetic scripture. We're never mentioned by name in the Bible. And therefore, we do not know how we fit into the worldwide scenario, which is described for us in all the um, prophetic books and passages of the scripture. I do know, however, this is one thing I do know, I do know that the Lord Jesus Christ will triumph eventually over all evil. I do know that he already has defeated Satan and that Satan is getting very upset because he realizes that his time is coming to an end. Time is running out for Satan and he is giving it all he's got. And we're very close, I do believe, to the rapture of the church. And I do also know that all those who place their trust in him will never perish. They will never be destroyed. Because nothing is too hard. Nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. Furthermore, righteous justice will eventually come to all who have embraced wickedness. You know how they wanted to call our military um, action infinite justice and people complain that that title only belongs to God or that's only God's prerogative well they were right it is only God's prerogative infinite justice righteous justice will eventually come to all those who have embraced wickedness and I also know that in the meantime while you and I yet live here upon this earth we are given the wonderful privilege of and the responsibility of interceding for the lost and of being a consistent godly witness to them warning them of the wrath to come we should point people to the truth of God's word as never before and warn them as I said earlier that they just have not seen anything yet it was just amazing to watch the TV and and realize that this is not a movie this is real life it was like reading one of those left behind books you know what I believe this is just opinion here but I believe that God has used two things recently I believe he's used in a mighty way those left behind books Um, that Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins have written as a wake-up call, a warning call 
Now, I don't agree with absolutely everything in those books, but I know he has mightily used them to warn people about the judgment to come. And now I believe also that he has used the alarm, alarming tragedies, the atrocities, the the horrific, I keep hearing that word over and over again, but it was horrific, the horrific um, events of this month to shake us, to wake us up. And as I said, I'm really primarily speaking to those of us who are believers. We need to get going on our business of praying, interceding, and warning. Not only praying and interceding on behalf of our nation and all of those who don't know the Lord, but also of... Um, warning people about the judgment that's to come. You know, as the people, so sad to see them carrying their the signs of their, their loved ones who they hoped would be found, and we're all sitting there watching knowing there was no way. But I was thinking, how is it going to be after the church disappears suddenly at the rapture? Everybody, I could just picture that. You know, Dan Rather will just go right on and, and all, all the newscasters will be giving their commentaries about everything and how mysterious and how horrible this is. And people will be walking around with pictures of their missing relatives on themselves saying, have you seen so-and-so? And it'll be worldwide. Everybody, people, airline pilots, everybody, you know, will be suddenly missing. And didn't that, didn't you think of that as they're going around with the missing pictures? That's a picture of what it will be like after the rapture, because they won't know. So many will not know what happened to us. Well, it is interesting to take notice of the fact that this is the first example of an intercessory prayer in all of the Bible. And we can only assume that it's given to us in such great detail so that we might use it as an example for our own intercessory prayers. So let's examine very carefully and quickly Abraham's prayer of intercession and see what we can learn from it. First of all, <laughs> excuse me, we should notice that Abraham's prayer of intercession was a humble prayer. Abraham did not beseech the Lord to answer his request to spare Sodom on the basis that he himself was a godly man who deserved to have his request answered. He did not presume upon God that God was obligated to hear him because he was his friend or because he had sacrificed so much to follow him or any other such presumption. Rather, we read in verse 27 that Abraham referred to himself as being but dust and ashes. Abraham recognized that it was remarkable that the Lord even permitted him to keep on entreating him. We find that Abraham actually asked the Lord six times to spare Sodom, each time bringing down the number of needful righteous within the city in order for God to agree to withhold his judgment. And this too is really remarkable on Abraham's part. And it shows us the high level of friendship and fellowship which had developed between him and his Lord. And it also, of course, speaks to us of the need for persistence in our own intercessory prayers for others. And I might add also, of course, for our nation. Well, Abraham began by asking the Lord to spare Sodom if 50 righteous people live there. And the Lord agreed, saying, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. With such a quick, affirmative response, Abraham, who must have known a good deal about the depravity of the Sodomite people, figured that, you know, maybe he better lower his figure a little bit because perhaps there weren't as many as 50 people, righteous people living there. So he ventured to take the number needed to spare the city down to 45. And the Lord also agreed. 
Well, finding the Lord so willing to answer his requests, Abraham interceded for Sodom four more times before he seemed to sense that he had just gone far enough when he asked that only ten righteous people be enough to spare the entire city. He must have been hoping that Lot would have at least influenced his own family for the Lord and that they were all righteous. You know, they were believers in God and his promises concerning the coming Savior. Lot had, we know, at least two sons, according to Genesis 19.12, and at least two married daughters. And we know this from the reference to sons-in-law in Genesis 19.14. We know also that he had two unmarried daughters. So along with his wife, that makes a family of ten people. However, sadly, as we know, Lot had not influenced his family by his own righteousness and his own witness for God, and therefore most of his family perished along with Sodom and Gomorrah. But the fact yet remains that God would have spared the city. He would have if there had only been ten righteous people living there. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he would rather have the wicked turn from their ways and live. Ezekiel 33.11 Now two important truths that we can gain from this latter half of Genesis 18 for application to our own lives are, first of all, the importance of intercessory prayer in our own lives, and secondly, the importance of our individual witness. First of all, we must understand that God does not enjoy bringing judgment on any city or any people or any individual. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Furthermore, we should never underestimate the importance of our prayers on the behalf of others, whether nations or cities or people groups or individuals. For, as we've seen in Genesis 18, God does respond to the prayers of his people. He would have spared Sodom, according to Abraham's request if indeed there had only been ten righteous people living there. And he did see to it that the one for whom Abraham was most concerned, that being his nephew Lot, was removed before destruction came. And he even gave ample warning to his family members. So we must never think that our lives do not make a difference. We may have no idea until heaven the good which has come to pass because of our intercessory prayers. Secondly, we should remember how significant our own individual witness is in two respects. As we find in this lesson, only ten believers in the very large city of Sodom would have been enough to have spared the entire city from destruction. We should never underestimate the importance of even a small number of believers. The wicked of this world have no idea how much they owe to the righteous. For the sake of his own, God's blessings have been shared by those utterly undeserving, and judgments have been withheld from those who would have otherwise perished long ago. Think of how Laban's flocks were greatly increased for the sake of Jacob, and how Potiphar's household prospered for the sake of Joseph. And think about how God promised... Um, in Jeremiah 5.1, to spare Judah from captivity if only one righteous person had been found in Jerusalem. Even the extremely wicked and vile cities of Sodom and Gomorrah would have been spared if Lot had been a better witness to his own family, just to his own family. 
So this then takes us to the other side of the coin regarding the importance of our own witness. Not only does our presence within a society help to withhold judgment from that society, as the presence of the church in the world is like salt, a preservative preventing total corruption, but the strength of our witness is important in bringing others to righteousness so that they are rescued from ultimate divine justice against all ungodliness. Lot's witness, had it been strong, could have saved not only his own family, but his whole city from encountering the wrath of God. So once again, never underestimate the importance of your own testimony for the Lord. Well, this is such a rich chapter of the scripture that we could spend much more time on it. And I hope that you will really think about its principles to your own life and to the life of our nation as you individually and then collectively in your groups go over the questions for thought and meditation this week and next Tuesday morning. And particularly think about the two very significant questions of this chapter. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Think about how the answers to those questions affect your own understanding of life and of death and of God and of his purposes and his plans for this world and for you. And think, too, about your own responsibility, like Abraham, to be a humble, ready, willing, generous servant to the Lord and to others. Not only may we at some point in time be entertaining angels unawares, but in serving others for Christ's namesake, we are actually serving him. And then ask yourself also if you are truly behaving as a friend of God. First of all, do you know him? Have you been born again? Secondly, do you spend time communing with him through prayer and through meditation upon his words? Thirdly, as I just mentioned, are you busily active in his service? A significant part of that service involves intercessory prayer. Remember, one life can make a difference. Abraham's intercession for Sodom could have made a difference for many, many people if only one man, Lot, had done his job of being salt and light even to his own family. So do not ever make the mistake of thinking that your one life does not matter, because it does. So make it to be a tremendous influence for good, and not, as with Lot, a stumbling block which keeps people from wanting to know your Savior.